There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the Word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you only look, then you will see On WCN-TV Hi, friends. Thank you for joining me today here on WCN-TV. I'm Dr. Mike Spaulding, co-host with Rob Pugh. You got a second? Text your friends, message your friends, and tell them to join us here on WCNTV.net. You won't want to miss this conversation, and I know you're going to be sharing this after this is over. My guest today is James Spence. He is the author of Operation Heal America. He is the founder and president of the ministry by the same name. I'm going to read an excerpt from James's book just to get started, to give you a flavor of this conversation. James writes, our nation is in trouble. However, contrary to what many Christians believe, God is not holding Satan, demons, unbelievers, past and present administrations Congress, Republicans, Democrats, moderates, progressive, liberals, conservatives, the alt-left, the alt-right, the deep state, fake news, special interest groups, lobbyists, underground operatives, social media, or even Hollywood responsible. How's that for an entrance? He's holding his people responsible. Darkness is just doing what it knows to do. Have we forgotten that we fellow believers are the light of the world? Well, I think the answer to that question is yes, but this is a wake-up call. James offers a wake-up call to the body of Christ. James is the president of Operation Heal America, a kingdom company, and let me emphasize that again, a kingdom-focused man and company ministry dedicated to unleashing a spiritual healing and revival from our house to the White House, which I'll add, the White House is our house. Let's remember that, friends. Now a retired FBI agent, this Annapolis graduate, former Navy pilot, possesses a master's degree from the University of West Florida. Author of the book, Do You Want to Get Well? James is an experienced author, speaker, teacher, worship leader, and evangelist, OperationHealAmerica.com is the website. James, thank you so much for joining me today here on WCN-TV. Well, Mike, thanks so much. It's a great honor to be with you once again. And um, just so excited to see how the Lord is going to use this. The last session was just amazing, and I just can't thank you enough. Well, it's it's an honor, brother, to meet kingdom-minded men, warriors, in fact, And that's exactly what we need. We were talking before we went on the air, and it was just another reminder for me that God is indeed assembling his soldiers, his army, his warriors today, because there is much work to be done and meeting you. And and I'll just I'll just let folks uh, I'll just tell them this, James. There is value in social media. I know that we love to disparage social media, and and it is. There's a lot of evil on social media. I understand that. But you can shield yourself from most of that if you're out on social media. James and I actually were introduced to to one another through LinkedIn. 
through LinkedIn. So a social media platform, James reached out and connected and, and introduced himself. And then that led to a couple of conversations. Um, he sent me his book and I've got to tell you, uh, I already passed this on. I had to ask for it back today, James. In fact, I said, <laughs> Hey, I'm talking to James again tonight. I need my book back. And so I got it. I said, I'll give it back to you tomorrow. I promise. Cause, cause they were, well, I'm in the middle of reading this and I don't want to give it up. And I said, I'll get it back to you. So the Lord is assembling his sons and daughters. There is a battle that is raging right now for the heart and the soul of America. Isn't there, James? There really is. And I want to emphasize something you said and sort of unwrap it maybe in a slightly different direction is a lot of Christians, including myself for many years, get discouraged about Well, what if people don't repent? What if people don't humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways? And I remind people that Gideon started with 30,000, but at the end of the day, he ended up with 300. So God is still in the business of doing amazing things with just his remnant. And And when you say that literally, Mike, that God is rallying for his people, you know, I think of 2 Timothy 2, 4, no man wars you know, who entangles himself with the affairs of his life, who, you know, is chosen to be a soldier. I mean, we we are so entangled with the affairs of this life. And we have to remember that we were chosen to be soldiers. And that soldier body of Christ, the remnant, has never been more unified. Hear me, brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, the remnant, specifically the remnant, has never been more unified and is totally ready to do what it takes. But obviously, we want to spread this message far and wide and have that remnant increase in as many people, you know, who will come to faith in Christ and experience spiritual healing and revival and become literally part of this amazing thing called the kingdom of God. That if literally, if you want to look at the common thread from Genesis to Revelation, it's the kingdom of God. And we are here to reclaim territory that Adam and Eve turned over to the devil, literally. We're here to reclaim our hope, our joy, our families, our finances, every institution from our house to the White House for the expansion of God's kingdom and the magnification of his glory. And the remnant gets that. So that's very exciting. Absolutely. It is, James. It it is. And one of the things that um, I was impressed throughout uh, your book. And, and again, friends, I'm speaking with author James Spence. The book is Operation Heal America. The time has come for spiritual healing and revival from our house to the White House. One of the things that I was impressed, this, this it was a, a current that ran throughout the book, was evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. Changing hearts is what's going to change America, isn't it? It really is. You know, I shared uh, last time, I'll share it again, Uh, depending on the source you go to between 93 and 95 percent of all believers will never lead one person to faith in Christ over their entire lifetime. The last thing Jesus said after the resurrection, we know he spent 40 days on the earth before he took the lofty elevator to heaven, the ascension. And the last thing he said, I would argue is the most important thing that he wanted us to remember to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all men, baptize them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit and teach them to observe. Observe means apply. All that I commanded, not some that I commanded, but all that I commanded, lo, I'll be with you even to the ends of the earth. So that is the primary mission of the church. If you, if most people would look even at the mission statements of their church, while they're very warm and cozy and they say nice things, I did a huge study on this of the 50 most successful, quote unquote, successful, prosperous churches, prosperous in terms of you know, just doing really, really well, lots of membership. And only two of the 50 had the Great Commission as the primary mission of the church. And you talk to people and they say, well, we don't have that, but that's what ours means. Well, well, really, then, you know, do we really need to spend 16 hours or 16 days in meetings to have the same mission that Jesus told us our mission should be? And, and so many, you know, are 
not only have the correct, don't have the correct mission statement, but we're not executing it, Mike. So you're exactly right. We're to go into all the world and to preach the gospel and make disciples. And if we're not preaching the gospel and making disciples, we're majoring on the minor and we're minoring on the major. And we're literally just having a party for Jesus, you know, every week. Right. And, and yep. And in many of these churches, Jesus is not even inside the church, as we talked about, because we've so watered down the truth of the gospel. You know, he's knocking on the door. We, we talked about Revelations 3.20 uh, last time. Behold, I stand at the door knocking. If you open the door, I'll come in. So because we've kicked truth to the side, because we've kicked the primary mission of the church to the side, and so many other things that you know we may or may not touch upon tonight, but most of you are aware of it, from prosperity theology to uh, you know elevating you know tolerance above holiness, we are not doing what Jesus called us to do. And the primary things are to preach the gospel, back to your question, Mike, evangelism and making disciples. If we're not disciples, becoming disciples, making disciples, we are off mission. And here's why it's so critical. It's not only bad, but literally Jesus wants to transfer his authority to us. He said, look, you know, all authority belongs to me in the Old Testament. God the Father was center stage. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is center stage. After the ascension, the Holy Spirit is center stage. But he's still reporting and glorifying Jesus. So it's all about Jesus. He's the king. It's his kingdom. We're supposed to be expanding his kingdom for his glory. And he's not going to turn over his authority to people who don't have his back and won't follow him, i.e. true disciples. So if we're not becoming disciples and making disciples, it's not only a bad day in bedrock, but Jesus is not turning over his authority to us. And if you look everywhere from our house to the White House, it's the same problem. Where's kingdom authority? You know, as an FBI agent, if I don't do things the FBI, now I'm retired now, but when I was an agent, if I didn't do the things the FBI way and swear out search warrants and arrest warrants and I just showed up at people's houses, you know, without an arrest warrant or just willy nilly doing my thing, the FBI didn't have my back. And I'm not saying, you know, by God's grace, I wasn't that type of an agent, but you get my point is that whether it's the FBI or the kingdom of God or IBM or Oracle or McDonald's or Pepsi, If we're doing things our way, those businesses, those agencies in the kingdom of God, the king, Jesus Christ, will not transfer his authority. And everywhere you look, inside and outside of churches, we've got a transfer problem. And the reason we have a transfer problem is because we're not becoming disciples who are making disciples. Our biggest crisis in the church today, in my opinion, is a word crisis. We don't know the word and a discipleship crisis. We're not becoming disciples who make disciples. Amen. Amen. And I remember, James, the last time we chatted, um, I took away two great points. And and this illustrates, in fact, how what we just discussed, what you just pointed out, evangelism, discipleship, the the, the great commission, um, which is a which is a mandate, friends. It's not a suggestion. Um, it touches every area of our life and ministry. And and so last time we chatted, I I, I remember as I was reading through the book, and and I, and I brought this up. And I think I may have even told you, James, I said, man, I'm going to use this in marriage counseling for sure. And, and But there's another application. We should be evaluating ourselves. Where are we at today versus a year ago in our in our walk of faith with the Lord Jesus? Where are we at compared to five years ago? And where do we hope to be six months from now or, or, or a year from now? It's important that we, that we keep things in perspective in our faith walk. So, so here are the two points that I took away, and, and, and I will use them in marriage counseling. I'll look at couples, young people that, that are in love and, and just want to spend the rest of their lives together in this, this marital bliss that they just know is going to happen magically, and I'll ask each of them individually. So you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, yes, we're, we're Christians. Well, when was the last time that you shared the gospel with anyone? Anyone. And who's discipling you? And who are you discipling? Because the life of a believer as you just stated, is all about sharing the gospel. And that that crosses every context. And it's all about 
making disciples or being discipled. Those pieces are surely, surely missing. And it's time to remedy that in the body of Christ today. Well, and one of the lies I talk about in my book in chapter six is that a lot of us have allowed Satan to convince us that demonstration of the gospel eliminates the need for proclamation of the gospel. Yes. Yeah. And that couldn't be any further from the truth. Back to elementary school with show and tell. You got to show and you got to tell. You got to tell and you got to show. So many Christians, and I was guilty of this for many years, just thought if I was nice and kind and did a lot of uh, charity and, and volunteer work and service, that that was sort of fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, no, it's not. I mean, I we can go do that with this with uh, the Peace Corps, who condemns you and will and tell you to go elsewhere if you share the gospel. That's so right. it's critical that our witness is very different than the world's witness, because quite frankly, Mike, I'm sure you've met these people. I've met a ton of unbelievers, people who were not Christians, who were as nice, if not nicer and more kind than many of the Christians that I know. So we've got to be different, right? We've got to look at every aspect of our life and say, is this tied to the kingdom of God? Is this tied to the advancement of God's kingdom for his glory? And if it's not, we got to fix it. And that's in, that includes relationships that we need to cut. You know, I like to use this expression. Sometimes you got to worship with a knife. Yeah. Worshiping with a knife means there are things and people in our lives that are hindering the move of God. And sometimes we have to cut those things. Yes. And if we don't, we're not going to get to where God wants us to be. But here's another piece that's the real crisis that gets lost in all this, which is is really spot on. But can you imagine how we feel as parents when our children don't do what we want them to do. Imagine how Jesus feels when his people don't become disciples who make disciples, how we are breaking Jesus's heart on a daily basis by not fulfilling the great commission. And I pray that's when that the spirit of what I just said falls on the on the remnant and the body of Christ that truly do love Jesus Christ. When we begin to realize what we're doing to the heart of God, Literally daily, I believe he's weeping. You know, I be, b- believe he, he fluctuates uh, between weeping and anger, anger and weeping, weeping and anger, all of it at the same time. I mean, that's how I see, you know, and if we really love Jesus Christ and and we really care about bringing him glory, like we say, then that should cause us to make whatever adjustments we need to make to ensure that we're majoring on his major and not minoring on the major. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So, so here's, here's something that you just did perfectly illustrates what, what you just said, James, and this is from chapter, chapter one. The real issue in America is that Christians, our souls are not being fed or led by the spirit. That's the issue. The real crisis in America is not moral, political, social, economic. It's a spiritual ruling crisis. And and this is what you wrote. Beloved, his kingdom cannot come and his will cannot be done on earth as it is in heaven during our lifetimes for his glory if we never get around to ruling our worlds under his hand and his way from our house to the White House. Again, Every war fought, whether it's in the Middle East, inside the Beltway, or inside our homes, is about territory. Now that you know this, who's ruling the territory in your heart, in your home, in your church, in your city, in your nation? And if it's not God, what are we prepared to do about it? Thus, the real crisis in America, it's not a moral, political, social, or economic one. It is a spiritual ruling issue. Amen. 100%. You know, Mike, uh, many of us like to think of, as Christians, we love to think of Jesus as Savior and that he is. Thank God for that. But many of us don't like to think about Jesus as ruler because ruler means we got to get off the throne and allow him to sit on the throne of our lives. Mm -hmm. And many Christians, including myself, for many years, we like control, baby. We like Mm -hmm. to call the shots. 
And we don't want to turn that thing over to anybody, including the creator of the universe. And Jesus says, you can't follow me. You're not willing to deny yourself and take up your cross. You can't follow me. And I'm not transferring my authority to you. I'm going to hold on to it. And that's why we got no power in our lives. I call it the impotent, the spiritually impotent church. I mean, think about that word illustration. That's what we got going on because we're unwilling to make Jesus king and ruler. We leave him at savior. Some people say it's a difference between savior and Lord. And that's really kind of what I'm talking about. There's a huge difference between having Jesus as savior and having Jesus as Lord. But I like to take a little further to your point. And also think of him not only as Lord, but what does that mean? That means he's our ruler. He's our king. Mm -hmm. He's the king of this kingdom and his rule because the Holy Bible. And whenever I allow my word to be elevated above his word, we're going to clash. And that means he's not my ruler. That means he's not my Lord. That means he's not my king. And that means he's going to hold on to his authority. Done. Satan says, thank you. Who's next? Yes. Amen. Amen. And I... So chapter two, and this is the one that I that I actually gave the book to someone else, James, to read uh, because it was a fantastic, powerful chapter. In fact, uh, the great role reversal is is chapter two, and and again, I have to share these quotes because it just lays the groundwork for 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 the the questions that I have about this. But it's 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 so good. Here's what you wrote here. It said. Uh, It was Adam who had forsaken his leadership role when the serpent came to Eve and deceived her. It was Adam who allowed his wife's human viewpoint orchestrated by Satan to overrule him and God. It was Adam who listened to his wife instead of God when it came to eating from the forbidden tree. While Eve usurped Adam's authority by listening to the serpent, it was Adam who went passive and allowed it to happen right under his nose. Thus, it was Adam who God came looking for first as the spiritual leader of their family and chief ruler over all that God created. Hey, guys, God really expects men to fulfill their roles. James? Amen. You know, uh, we, we think of 1 Corinthians eleven three. Jesus is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman, his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Jesus mm-hmm. has a chain of command. And he expects us to have a chain of command. He expects men to stay behind him in formation. He expects wives to stay behind their spiritual leader as long as he's not leading her in a direction that's wrong, illegal, or unbiblical. He's to stay in his lane behind Christ. She is to stay in her lane behind him. And children are supposed to stay in their lane, lanes behind mom and dad. And when Anybody, whether it's him, her, or the kids, get out of their lane. I like to use the illustration of the Blue Angels. Are you going to pay money to go see that air show? You know, we're all supposed to be in formation behind Christ. And uh, and, and it's just a, a tragedy um, how literally when we get out of our lanes and men go passive or abusive and men usurp the authority of their husbands in the home, And parents allow kids to to usurp the authority of the parents in their home, how everything runs amok. And we have that same dynamic happening in every institution from our house to the White House. It's happening in the schoolhouse, in the courthouse, in our academic institutions, in our universities. It's happening in the media. It's happening in the military. It's happening in the economy. Everywhere you look. We're all out of our lanes and upside down. And God is a God of order and peace. And when we do not do things his way, he withdraws and gives us over to our own devices, Romans chapter one. And that's exactly what we're experiencing in our homes, in our churches, in our government, in our nation. Yes. Amen. You really shock people in, uh, in chapter three, whose covenant is it anyway? I know when folks are reading this book, James, they're going to say, what? <laughs> oh, I've never heard this before. You actually lay out very, very clearly what the purpose of marriage is from God's perspective. With very few exceptions, that's not understood today, is it? No, it, it's really not. Uh, we think it's all about us and our happiness. And while 
I like to call it joy because it doesn't depend on circumstances and it's not fleeting. Why joy? If you want to say happy, it's okay. But the better word, the biblical word is joy. Joy emanates from a life that is obedient and submitted to the authority and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And most couples do not understand that the covenant that they are entering into is a relationship between them and God. And oh, by the way, husbands and wives, you didn't draft the covenant. The covenant was written by him and we're either signing to agree to do it his way or we're not. And most of us don't understand that. So we go into marriage thinking marriage is about our happiness and about our well-being. And Satan knows real quick how to get husbands and wives unhappy with one another. And if we're not holding on to something greater than happiness, he's got us. It's only a matter of time before the husband gets out of his lane and or the wife gets out of her lane with children out of their lanes because there's no one to follow. And that's the same problem that we have going on in churches and governments, even in business. So uh, absolutely, Mike, we don't know what we're signing up for when we get married to the detriment of ourselves, even if we stay married for 30, 40, 50 or 60 years. I mean, we pat ourselves on the back. We talked about this last time, you know, a dead tree like a dead marriage in a dead church can stand in the forest for a long time. Just because a couple has been married for 30, 40 or 50 years doesn't mean that marriage is alive if it's operating outside of the covenant of Jesus Christ with his kingdom and his glory at the forefront. Yes. Amen. Amen. And you uh, you put great value and, and, and stress the importance of the local body, um, the local church, the local ecclesia and and. I found your discussion about family court to be refreshing because I can count on one hand, James, the number of places that I've ever read anything like that. Uh, Part of the ministry of the local body should be coming alongside families and helping them to to grow in sanctification, to to help them with their difficulties, help them with their uh, marital issues, help them with their family issues. That's just not going on. Uh, like it should today, I don't think. No, not at all. It's literally supposed to be the king's people, us, taking the king's word, the Bible, Mm -hmm. and kingdom's court, which is the local church, to do kingdom business. Yep. I mean, the church is part of a bigger thing called the kingdom of God, right? So when it comes to marriage... God's people, the king's people are supposed to be taking the king's word into kingdom's courthouse and adjudicating on all matters of life, including marriage, separation and divorce. And most churches don't understand that. And some churches do understand it, but have said, you know what, it's just way too much work. We're not doing it. So we have done what God, what Paul forbid Christians to do, which is instead of adjudicating these issues in kingdom's courthouse, the local church, we're actually pushing it off on man. Yeah. So that so that couples are forced to go downtown and have unbelievers adjudicate on matters that should be being decided in kingdom's courthouse, the local church. Amen. Amen. And before we before we move on, I, I've got one other thing that I want to to uh, bring up for our viewers today, James, from this chapter on whose covenant is it anyway? I, I, very, very good point. But I want to also say. Those of you who have joined us in the queue today, if if you have questions, then uh, after James responds to this um, next comment that I have, then please feel free to to raise your hand and 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 you can ask your question. If there are no questions, then we'll continue to move on in our in our conversation. But in in this chapter, whose covenant is it anyway? You write this and you give four very good points. Some married couples may want to consider doing the following on their next wedding anniversary. Instead of patting yourselves on the back and announcing to the world how many years you've been married, honestly and courageously consider asking your mate the following tough questions. I thought this was good enough, James, and I shared this with Kathy, and I said, we're going to do this on our next anniversary, and our next anniversary will be 39 years, so 
So we've been we've been very, very blessed by the Lord. But don't ever think you've arrived any place, folks, where you got it all figured out and there's no need for improvement or evaluation or seeking the Lord because you're headed for a fall if that's your attitude. But anyway, this this is what you wrote. So point number one. Do you think our marriage advanced God's kingdom and glory more this year than in the previous year? Or were we more interested in advancing our kingdoms and glory? Two, is the level of closeness and intimacy we share greater than it was a year ago? Or are we settling for marital detente where we're not devouring one another, but where there is little evidence of tenderness and sweetness in our relationship? Three, do you trust and respect me more than you did a year ago? Four, do you think the last year of our marriage caused God to smile more or less than it did in the previous year? Man, those are some probing questions, James. That gets right to the heart of the matter. Well, right now, not to interrupt you, but just to interject real quick. They scare the you-know-what out of most men. <laughs> yeah, well, you're talking intimacy here, and men men don't, don't do intimacy well generally. I, broad brushstrokes, but you would think... James, if we are tuned in to the Holy Spirit, we're truly seeking to advance God's kingdom and we are wanting to be used as he sees fit. Why would we be afraid of intimacy? Yeah, and it's really alarming. I mean, you've been to marriage conferences, right, where everybody, yeah. you know, where the husband writes where he thinks on a scale of one to ten, the level of the, the of closeness yeah. and intimacy is in the relationship, yeah. and then and then it's her turn, and the guy thinks it's like a eight or a nine, right, and she thinks mm-hmm. it's like a three or a four. Well, you know, how can that be? It's because we're not willing to ask each other the tough questions because we're afraid. We've actually elevated the fear of man above the fear of God. It's idolatry. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So are there any questions uh, in the queue? Those who've joined us today, you have a question for James, please uh, raise your hand and, and I'll acknowledge you and you can ask your question. Anyone? Okay. Well, we're going to move on again, friends. I am talking with James Spence. The book is Operation Heal America. The time has come for spiritual healing and revival from our house to the White House. Uh, James, I was uh, listening to uh, an interview today uh, while I was driving uh, someplace, and um, the the guest that was that was being interviewed made a very very good point, um, and the the host then responded and asked asked the the guest a question and said, how big of an issue is it today for Christians who who claim to believe certain things, but they're not actually living it? How big of an issue is that? And can that be looked at as part of the power outage or power shortage in the Christian, uh, in the, not just the Christian individual life, but Christians in America and the power of the church, can can that be examined and say, hey, right there's a problem. We're not actually living what we say we believe. Yeah, it's, it's huge because back to what we were saying before, Jesus is not going to transfer his authority to people that he can't trust to execute. That's the operative word, right? Execute his mission. Yes, John 2, a lot of people forget about this. This is a very, it's kind of heart-wrenching to think about. It's sad, but it's a really necessary thing, I believe, for all of us to reflect on. At the end of John chapter 2, right around verses 24 and 25, it says words to this effect, and I paraphrase, and many believed on him. He had just done a bunch of miracles. He, Jesus, had just done a bunch of miracles, and many had believed on him, but he, Jesus, did not entrust himself to many of them because he knew, do you want to finish it? Because he knew what was in their hearts. Yes. So there are so many believers, right, who are not living out authentic Christian life, and we come back to the transfer of authority issue. Uh 
He's got all this authority. He's got all authority, and he wants to transfer it to us. If you go to Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, he's transferring his authority to disciples, man. They're binding up demons. They're you know dealing with diseases because Jesus could trust them that they were going to execute what he told them to do. And to those believers, he will transfer his authority and power all day. Remember, you can have power that's not legit, legitimate, but not have authority. What Jesus is looking for is us to come under legitimate authority, which is him, so he can dispense to us legitimate power. And he's not going to do that if our talk doesn't match our walk. Amen. Amen, brother. You quote uh, Michael Savage. This is a great quote in, in chapter six, Big Lies the Church believes. Here's the quote. America's hope lies in the hands of evangelical Christians who will have the courage to live what they believe. That is exactly what you've just described, James. The Lord Jesus is not going to give his anointing, his power, his authority to people who are, well, let's just call it what it is, hypocrites. They say they believe, but they're not living it. That's the sign of a hypocrite. Yeah, or they're not living an outwardly hypocritical life, but they're just disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Yes. Yeah, which is a form of hypocrisy, but it's a little bit more vanilla as as, opposed to chocolate. Yes, (laughs) not as blatant. Yeah. Yeah, yep, not as blatant. So, So you talk about the things that Christians believe that simply are not true. They've, they've exchanged truth for lies. And that's, that's part of the strategy of, of our enemy to, to get us to believe things that simply aren't true, to give us uh, a false sense of security. That has especially, especially infected the church in America, I believe. We have this attitude, and I find it strikingly similar, in fact, to the attitude of the the Jews of Jerusalem and Judah during the <clears throat> during the Babylonian captivity, um, when when Ezekiel went with the captives to Babylon, Jeremiah stayed back, and and the people in Jerusalem said, "The Lord is not going to turn Jerusalem over. This is this is where he he lives here in the temple, and and we're blessed and we're favored, and 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 God is certainly not going to destroy Jerusalem. He just won't do that." I think Americans have somehow got that same attitude that we're the apple of God's eye, and certainly he wouldn't judge America or bring any any destruction upon America. What do you think? Well, well, totally, and it's it's back to the satanic invasion, right, the, the great deception. And, and we forget that the, Devi, the devil, while our spirits are, are fully sanctified upon conversion, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God and once, our, and once saved, always saved. I mean, mm-hmm. I really believe scriptures replete with verses that say that. While, he, while Satan can mess with our souls, he can't mess with our spirit. But he messes with our souls, and our souls is our mind our will and our emotions, you know, our choices. And he piggybacks into our lives on top of lies. Remember, he's the great deceiver, the father of lies. So if he can convince us that we're doing a good job when we're really not, he's got us. So it really goes even deeper than that. I like to go to Matthew 6, 24, which says, no man can serve two masters for he'll love the one and hate the other also holds the one and despise the other. A lot of people don't realize, a lot of Christians don't realize that if they're not serving God, guess who they're serving? Guess whose kingdom they're building? So we can unknowingly be building Satan's kingdom and not even realize it. It's as simple as, focusing on ourselves instead of Jesus Christ and his people. The minute Satan can get us to focus on the preservation or the expansion of our kingdoms instead of God's, he's got us. So we unknowingly are actually building Satan's kingdom without even knowing it. So it's everything you said is true, but I think it even goes deeper than that, Mike, is we're actually not only not building God's kingdom, but we're advancing the wrong kingdom, i.e. Satan's kingdom. 
Amen. And, and many times, James, I believe that we're allowing the construction of our enemy's kingdom by remaining silent and not challenging things, not speaking the truth of, of, of what God's word has to say. Listen, friends, everything, all of life, when you think about it, is theology. Everybody is asking the big questions that need an answer. All questions have some kind of of moral foundation or basis or consequence, depending on the choice that you make. So this idea that Christians should just shut up and sit down because we've got nothing to contribute to to the public square and the debate and the conversation about the direction of our nation is simply nonsense. And we should not be falling for that. Unfortunately, A lot of believers are just kind of pulling back and they're remaining silent, even though they see and and, and they would tell you privately, well, I don't agree with the things that are going on. Uh, I believe they're 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 not biblical. And uh, but but I'm not going to say anything because, you know, I'm not supposed to judge. Right, James. Well, how many times have you heard that? You so much, Mike. I was guilty of it myself years ago. You hit upon two big lies that I cover and I cover hard and I cover deep that we're not supposed to judge is lie number one. And I'll speak briefly to that in a second. And the second one is that Christians should not be involved in politics. So the first one, not supposed to judge, I'll give you the cliff note version. There are so many scriptures that talk about righteous non-hypocritical judgment. I mean, we're going to judge the world with angels. Come on. Yes. I mean, Paul talks about church discipline, Matthew 18, 15 through 18. Go to the brother who has offended you. Well, a judgment has to be rendered, right? When you're going to your brother who has offended you, you have offended me. And here's that. Well, you're judging me. Yes, I am judging you righteously. And I'm not doing it hypocritically because I'm talking to you, you know, about your finance issue or your porn issue. And I'm not distributing porn. My finances are in order. So, I mean, righteous, non-hypocritical judgments is exactly what Jesus is looking for from his people. You know, we talked about, you know, going down to man's court. Paul said, why are you bringing in kingdom matters to man's court. They should be in kingdom's court, the local church. Those are all about righteous judgments. So I cover that in great detail. The big lie that we're not supposed to judge. No, we're not supposed to judge hypocritically. That's right. That's what the Bible says. I mean, I know I'm paraphrasing, but that's in essence what Jesus is teaching on judgment is. If you're going to judge, you better be living right because that same judgment is going to come around you. So he doesn't say don't judge. He says, if you're going to judge someone on that issue, you better be living right in that issue. That's right. So it's about hypocritical judgment. And then not being involved in politics. Are you going to tell me that Christians need to sit back on their laurels? And I call it rapture mania, Mike. It drives yeah. me crazy where, yeah. where Christians are just literally sitting on their hands waiting for the rapture. Really? I mean, what if Moses had done that? What if Joshua had done that? What if Nehemiah had done that? What if Samson had done that? I mean, we could go on and on Bible character after Bible character. No, Jesus is looking for us to reclaim this thing. So if he's looking for us to reclaim this thing, who are we? Why would we ever take the position that, well, he wants us to reclaim everything but in government or in politics. So I'm not going to run for senator and I'm going to let some ungodly senator, you know, make all these ungodly, you know, legislation is immoral legislation and and that that we're having to to deal with you know decades later no god wants his people in every sphere of influence including politics that's and right. by the way that requires making righteous judgments that's right <laughs> that's exactly right and uh wow i think what we're seeing today in our nation especially in washington dc is a direct result of Christians withdrawing from the public square and not becoming involved, thinking that somehow God wasn't interested in government. No, and I mean, you think of Paul confronting, you know, the the politic of his day and Jesus confronting Pontius Pilate. Yes, he was quiet. Sometimes he was quiet. Sometimes he didn't speak, but sometimes he spoke. Right. And I believe he knew when to be quiet and he knew when to speak whenever it was in line with the father's will. He and the father were like this. So sometimes the father said, I want you to be quiet. And now I want you to speak. Right. And who was he addressing? He was addressing the body politic of the day. So if Jesus didn't do it and Paul didn't do it, i.e. remain silent, why would we? Yes. 
<laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, I've got a military background as as you do, James. And so chapter seven was a delight. General quarters. I understand exactly what that means. But <laughs> for those that that uh, do do not have a, a military background or or don't have a close family member that that ever talked about their experiences in the military, what is GQ or, or general quarters, and how does that relate to the church today? Uh, Mike, thank you so much for covering this. I was hoping you would get to it because it really, uh, what we just talked about, this is a nice continuation and segue into, into some other points that I wanted to make. So general quarters, very simply, is a readiness condition set by naval commanders on their ships and submarines when attack from the enemy is imminent. The actual general quarters announcement is general quarters, general quarters, all hands, man your battle stations, set condition zebra throughout the ship, now general quarters. So it is a readiness condition where literally, and think of, as I'm speaking, think of all the spiritual applications to what a physical war looks like and what a spiritual war looks like. And this whole chapter is to say, do you realize that the way we prepare for battle in the physical is exactly the way the Lord wants us to prepare in the spiritual? Literally, general quarters, we're putting on our battle dress. Well, what's our battle dress? The armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet are shot with, you know, all the pieces of the helmet of salvation taken up. That is literally putting on your battle dress, moving smartly through the ship which is our areas of influence, and then manning our battle stations. What is the battle station for the Christian? It's our garden, back to Adam and Eve. Everything that's in our garden, our family, our children, our work, all our spheres of influence, that's our battle station. And if we don't have our battle gear on with our ammunition, ammunition is at the ready. At general quarters aboard a ship, Not only is the ship secured so that fire and flood that happens when the ship is attacked and prevent flooding from going from one compartment to another. That's the condition zebra, which you're actually shutting fittings, shutting doors, shutting hatches to prevent the flood and fire from moving from one compartment to another. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is trying to prevent. And because literally we have floodwaters and fire all over the place in our homes and in our churches and in the ship environment, when that ship gets attacked and condition zebra is not set and that fire and flood is unable to go from compartment to compartment to compartment, it's only a matter of time before that floodwater causes that ship to list. And if we don't restore watertight integrity to the USS America, because we've allowed the floodwaters Look, we've been hit in the family compartment. That's the main compartment. And because we haven't been able to stop the flooding in the family compartment, now the church compartment is flooding. And because we've not been able to stop the flooding in the family compartment and the church compartment, the city, the local city and state compartments in the sub compartments, the government, academia, media, military, economic sub compartments have all been flooded. And literally, the USS America is listing under the weight of all this flood water. And if we don't restore watertight integrity to her soon, she's going to sink. Amen. So General Quarters is all about getting on our battle gear, having the word of God ready. You know, I think of Nehemiah and how he fought the enemies in his region with the word of God when they came with their tactics of deception and, and trickery. And literally, we're showing up maybe at our battle stations if we even know where they are. I mean, commanding officers aboard submarines and ships are so emphatic about this. From the second that the ship or the submarine leaves leaves the pier, you're doing general quarters drills. You're doing general quarters drills during chow or evening meal. You're doing it at 11 p.m., at 2 a.m., at 3 a.m., at all hours of the day in total darkness. Sometimes the commanding officer will secure all the electrical power on the ship to see if we can get our battle dress on in the dark and get to our battle stations 
fully geared up. That means our armor is all the way on every piece correctly, not on backwards or sideways. And we're showing up at our designated battle stations in the military. If you show up out of your uniform, your battle dress, not at your battle station, you get one morning, you do that again and you're done. You're booted out. You know, you're standing before the commanding officer and many people are discharged because they're not in their battle dress and they're not at their battle station. So the, the the parallels between a physical war and a spiritual war, I mean, I could go on for hours, but this is the chapter, general quarters, where I outline them. And then I bring in Nehemiah and then I bring in Jesus and say, you know what? Nehemiah and Jesus, even the better example in Matthew 4, now he dealt with the devil. It's exactly what God is calling us to do in this hour, in this day, when the spiritual walls and gates of America lie in ruins. Remember uh, Nehemiah and his Jewish uh, working crew, they were the third group of exiles to return back from Babylon and they came back to Israel and they came back because Nehemiah's brother came to him, if you recall, and said, look, you're not going to believe this, but it was 70 years after the restoration of Jerusalem that the enemy had destroyed the walls and gates of Jerusalem, which represent protection, power, national security, everything that we talk about when we talk about walls and borders in the United States of America. And he recognized the need that he had to restore that. So I use the story of Nehemiah and this and the uh, story of of the uh, temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter four to say, man, we have these amazing military blueprints that we could execute if we would just be willing to do it God's way. And that requires being fully battle dressed out in our armor that, by the way, Nehemiah and his working crew never took it off. You talk to Christians, well, I'm, you know, I'm in meditation. I'm putting on the armor of God. Well, why did you take it off? You know, literally our armor is supposed to be on all the time. And if we accidentally don't have it off, it should be the exception and not the norm. You know, I say in the book, Mike, if the military did general quarters the way the church does general quarters, we'd all be speaking another language. Yep. Yep. Boy, that is so true, James. And the picture that that I had while you were you you were discussing this chapter is that instead of 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 training our children and our young people, drilling them and and pouring into them, the the process of discipleship knows no age boundary. Instead of doing that, we want to make sure that that our churches have soccer leagues for the kids and basketball leagues for the kids and all kinds of social activities for the kids and we never pour into them spiritually to make sure that their spirit person, that spirit man, that spirit woman is ready when that general quarters alarm goes off. They're, they're wholly unprepared. And, and it grieves me to say that today, but, but generally speaking, I think that's where we are at in the church today. So, so, the solution is, and you bring all this now uh, in the last couple of chapters, you do a brilliant job, James, of bringing this into focus. Okay, here is the conditions. Here, here is the, the environment. Here's what's happening. Here's the solution. And it starts with Second Chronicles 7.14. Yeah, and let me just bounce back to something you said, because I want to make just a really, really important point. And what you said is correct. I just want to unwrap it a bit more. I think might be helpful is you said when general quarters happens, which is exactly right. But it's even worse than that, because I say in the opening pages of general quarters that most of the church. Listen to this. This is this is such a. um indictment against we, the body of Christ, I believe that most of the church doesn't even hear the general quarters alarm. And then the other half of the church is hearing angels singing because they're waiting for the rapture. You know, (laughs) it's crazy what's going on in churches today. So not only is it important to know what to do, but we've got to say, okay, do I hear the alarm sounding? And what am I doing about it? Because literally, if we don't hear the GQ alarm sounding right now under the sound of our voices, the devil's got us. Yeah, He's already got us. 
Right. And so that goes to what you were saying. And what is he got us doing? Instead of discipling of our children, we're taking them to soccer practice mm-hmm. and dance recitals. And look, all those things have their place. But what you're talking about, Mike, is priorities. Back yes. to the great role reversal. The devil's got us all upside down. He's got soccer and ballet more important than spiritual training. Next, game over. That's right. Exactly right. Yep, that's right. Yeah. There are between, in your book, between 84 million and 200 and some million people in America that claim to be, profess to be, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think that number is anywhere near that. However, just for the sake of conversation, James, what would happen if a fraction of that number who profess faith or claim to be Christian, if they actually started living it? Well, you know, let me give a really tough, but I think it's a really good illustration to that question. 9-11. 19 Saudis from halfway across the world under the name of a faulty belief system, i.e. disciples Mm -hmm. of their faulty belief system, shut down the most powerful nation's transportation system and altered the way we do security and travel forever. If 19 people who were tr- who were true disciples to their faulty belief system with box cutters, Mike, yes, could shut down the most powerful nation's transportation system and alter the way we do travel forever, could you imagine if 83 million, let's say 40 million, let's say 20 million, let's say 10 million true disciples of Jesus Christ would execute God's plan according to his word. Can you imagine what we could do? Yeah. If 19 people under a faulty system could do what they did, could you imagine what 5 million voters who didn't vote in this last national election, who profess to be Christians, can you imagine if every Christian said, I'm going to the ballot box? You know what? I've been wrong about this. I need to be engaged in every sphere. I need to be a kingdom man and a kingdom woman, and I need to vote. I need to be involved in politics. I need to be involved. If God's calling me to the Senate, to the congressional floor, I got to be involved. I got to be a difference maker. Can you imagine if 19 people could do that under a faulty belief system? Amen. The sky's the limit for us. Amen. Amen. Friends, I've been talking with uh, James Spence. The book is Operation Heal America. I encourage you to go to James's website, operationhealamerica.com. Get the book. So what now? The final chapter, and this brings us right to the end of our conversation. This is perfect timing. So visit the ministry website, operationhealamerica.com, where you'll find all kinds of resources to help you in everything that we've just uh, talked about, get a copy of the book or several copies of the book and start passing them out. And and don't just pass them out to your friends or your family. Pass them out to your pastors. Thank you. Your church leaders. Pass them out. Give Go to city council and give them out to your council members. Make sure, friends, that you're getting this message out to people. James, I'll give you the last word. We've got about two minutes left, brother. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I mean, this is about a cry to pastors. Pastors, reach out to me through the website. I'll give you a free copy. It's a thick book. A lot of people get it and they freak out, right? And think, man, I'm so busy. I can't get through this. Look, just do me a favor and just read the introduction in chapter eight and reach out to me. We'll set up a quick phone call. We'll talk about any questions that you have. We just finished year one. It was amazing what God did. There is literally a grassroots personal revival going on right now in every state. I, I reached out to about 4,000 pastors last time, about 700, you know, agreed to, to read the book. I sent it to them and we had, you know, probably about 150, which is not very many, but we all we need is a remnant of right. pastors and churches who executed the six-week plan and, and chapter eight. And literally, you know, we are preparing for year two, which starts next January. So uh, reach out to me. 
read the introduction, read chapter eight, and let's do this thing together. I mean, I'm under the authority of Jesus Christ. I call myself the national on-scene commander. You know, my job is to support you shepherds in your local congregations. And, you know, this is for small groups, home group facilitators. There's a lot of uh, churches that are moving into households. I mean, all of us should be executing this together. I I give you my word, this is not a man thing. This is a God thing. It's all based on scripture, 2 Chronicles 7.14, which we know very well. But to God be the glory, I think has been unwrapped in a way it's never been wrapped before. And literally, can you imagine millions of Christians doing the same battle plan, the same national plan at the exact same time, covering the same material at the same time? You talk about unity. We've all been crying and weeping over church unity. You want to talk about unity? Imagine. What a stir this would be in the body of Christ and in our nation if we would all do this together. So please go to the website, pastors, reach out to me, give you a free copy of the book, get registered at the website, and let's do this together. Amen. Amen, James. Thank you so much. Friends, that's that's all we have time for today. Please share this program, this show, this conversation with your friends and on your social media platforms, OperationHealAmerica.com. We'll be back next Tuesday. See you then. Thank you, James. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. Bless you. God bless. 